Well, I invite you to take your outline from the worship folder and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our, uh, our series, uh, Jesus' Words to the Church. Um, if you don't like uh, snakes, you will not like them anymore after this um, story. This, this is actually from the LA Times, and it's about a hiker named Jay Rathman. He was hiking around Red Bluff, California, uh, north of Sacramento. And so this is from the article from the LA Times. He was climbing onto a ledge on the slope of a rocky gorge, and as he raised his head to look over the ledge, he sensed movement to the right of his face. A coiled rattler struck with lightning speed, just missing Rathman's right ear. The four-foot snake's fangs got snagged in the neck of Rathman's wool turtleneck sweater. And the force of the strike caused the snake to land on his left shoulder. I know, I feel the same way. <laughs> it then coiled around his neck. He grabbed it behind the head with his left hand and could feel the warm venom running down the skin of his neck. The rattles making a furious racket. If the person next to you looks faint at any time, <laughs> please raise your hand and we have EMTs in the back. No, we don't help them, fan them or something. He fell backward and slid headfirst down the steep slope he had just climbed up through brush and lava rocks, still holding on to the snake. As he later uh, said to the Department of Fish and Game official, as luck would have it, I ended up wedged between some rocks with my feet caught uphill from my head and I could barely move. He was able to disengage the fangs from his sweater, but the snake had enough leverage to strike again. And this is a quote from the article. He made about eight attempts, the snake, and managed to hit me with his nose only, just below my eye, four times. I kept my face turned so he could couldn't get a good angle with his fans, fangs, but it was very close. Gosh, this gives me the weebie-jeebies here. This chap he calls the snake, and I were eyeball to eyeball, and I found out that snakes don't blink. <laughs> so I had to choke him to death. Seriously, it was the only way out. I was afraid with all the blood rushing to my head by basically being upside down that I might pass out. When he tried to toss the snake aside, he couldn't let go. He said, I had to pry my fingers from its neck because he was holding it so tightly. <laughs> Rathman, 45, who works for the Defense Department in San Jose, estimates that his encounter with the snake lasted 20 minutes. Warden Dave Smith says of meeting Rathman, he walked toward me holding this string of rattles 
and said with a sort of grin on his face, I'd like to register a complaint about your wildlife here. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So there's a reason I start with this story. And that is because maybe you feel like you have a snake coiled around you right now, around your neck, and you're upside down on a steep cliff, and you would like to register a complaint against God for what's going on in your life right now. If you've ever felt like that, or if you feel like that now, then the message to Smyrna is for you. Uh, We're in a series that, uh, looking at right now at the seven churches of Revelation in Smyrna, the second church that we're looking at is written to hurting people. The believers of Smyrna uh, must have felt like the serpent of the Roman Empire was wrapped around their neck. And they were hanging upside down uh, for dear life on a cliff on the side of a cliff. And maybe we expect things to be generally great in our lives. And maybe that's why we're surprised when something bad happens. I talked to someone not long ago that said that they were hurting deeply and asked God to take away their personal pain and bring healing to their life and some relationships. And because he didn't, he said he could not go on believing in God. And yet I've talked to even more people who have something similar happen in their lives. And they say it drew them closer to God than they'd ever been. Sometimes it's basically the same event that can make one person more open to God and close the heart of another. One author wrote this, you either take what has been dealt to you and allow God to make you more conformed to Jesus or you allow it to tear you down. The difference may be when people are somewhat equipped to have a biblical perspective on the experience of suffering. And that's what we're looking at here. So on your outline at the top, it says this, that the church in Smyrna, actually as well as Philadelphia, received no rebuke from Jesus. Because Jesus is the first and the last and the conqueror over death, he must be bigger to us than even death itself. The church at Smyrna had suffered and more suffering was coming. So here's what God has to say about the hard times you're going through. Let's read our passage, uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, 
Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's word. So I want to take a look at Smyrna, uh, and, and archaeologists are still excavating, and you have this on your outline, a large three-story agora, which was a shopping mall and a civic center, several blocks wide. And it was a, a vibrant commercial center. They found some fascinating things there in the excavations. The bottom floor had these beautiful archways. It would have been a, a striking building, I think, even in our day. Um, a famous Greek writer, Aristides, said this in a speech, destruction may be final for men or other cities, but this is not true of Smyrna. Uh, these are the words that of, of him who is the first and the last, it says, and died and came to life again. So Smyrna was known as that city that kept coming back, kept dying and coming back to life again. Like the Phoenix, they were very proud of their beautiful public buildings. There had been earthquakes there and wars and fires, but Smyrna kept coming back to life again. And when John writes that Jesus is the one who died and came back to life again, uh, you can see how he's leveraging their local history and knowing about it uh, to speak into the spiritual life of the church. And more importantly, John is saying that Jesus really did die and came back to life again. And so he's saying right at the beginning, and this is on your outline, that Jesus is God and man. The first and the last draws attention to his deity. The, the, and, and the one who was dead and, was dead and came to life speaks of, of his humanity. And so he is God and man. And one, he says he has authority over time. That's him as God, Right? that first and the last, and that he was dead and came back to life again, emphasized his, his authority over death and over life. And so the next thing on your outline is Jesus is bigger than death. There used to be a road that ran from the harbor in Smyrna up to the top of a large hill, and that was the main avenue called the Golden Street. Uh, again, because of all the beautiful buildings and the, 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 the city as it was. The name of the city, Smyrna, uh, comes from something, uh, a spice that came from Smyrna, and that's myrrh. In fact, I, I just wonder if that's where the myrrh came from that anointed Jesus at his death. Uh, it was a proud and beautiful city. On its coins were inscribed the words, first of Asia in beauty and size. So they were a very proud city. And like the honeybee, remember we talked about that last week, was the symbol of Ephesus. The crown was the symbol of Smyrna. Uh, and it basically became their logo and extended beyond their influence and across uh, Asia. They became known as the crown of Asia. In AD 23, as a reward for the city's loyalty, Smyrna beat out 11 other cities for the right to build the temple to worship Tiberius Caesar, who was uh, <clears throat> Caesar, <clears throat> the one in, in control when Christ was crucified. And they were also the first city to, in the world to build a temple uh, to a new goddess named Roma, uh, deifying Rome. Roma was meant to personify the Roman Empire. 
and they wanted to show Rome across the Mediterranean how loyal they would be and how loyal they were uh, to Rome. And on this city above the hill, inside this fortress, there were many temples that made up what was known as the crown of Smyrna uh, to the various gods. The fortress looked like a crown. That's where they, they got that from. And when it says at the last part of verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I think what Jesus is saying there relating to what he knows about Smyrna that you're proud of the crown of your city, I will give you a crown that will last forever. That's what he's saying to him. Jesus doesn't see all cities the same. He looks at each one separately, each one uniquely, and he does that today. And he looks at each person in a unique way and special way. And he doesn't deal with you as, as a mass. He deals with you as an individual. He loves you. And so the image most associated with Smyrna was a crown. And crowns are mentioned in the Bible. You can see them listed on your outline. The crown of life and righteousness and glory and gold and rejoicing and incorruption. And each of these draw attention to the blessings of salvation that we have on one level or another that are ours in Christ. I encourage you to go back and look up these verses today. Underline them in your Bible. Once a year, they would do a procession. The city would do a procession up the hill. uh, And they would pass by the altar of Caesar on their way. And they would put money on the altar. And they would acknowledge Caesar as Lord and God, what he wanted to be acknowledged as. And that money would be given as a tribute to Rome. And Rome, as you can imagine, loved Smyrna because of that. And in return, Smyrna kept getting all these big subsidies from Rome to rebuild when they had a disaster that would happen. And so one of the the one group of people who would not make that trek up up the hill to Smyrna uh, were Christians. And that number kept growing in Smyrna. And so uh, there was a great persecution that broke out. Many of them were burned at the stake. They were fed to wild animals. And you know, we've talked about before the persecution that was going on at uh, this time in, in this area in general, but in Smyrna in particular. And then in verse 11, it says, I'm not just saying these words to Smyrna, but whoever has an ear to hear. And so I think there's, this can be a very instructive passage for us as we look at, at suffering in our lives, as we look at hard times that we're going through, as we look at persecution. And so John gives three encouragements from Jesus to suffering people. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, we could all use some encouragement about now in our country. And if you, if you don't think you need anything now, you will in the future. And maybe even sooner than you expect. So the first thing that Jesus says in verse 9 is, I know. I know. And we should be in awe of the fact that God knows us. Like David says in Psalm 8, 4, he said, I cannot understand how you can bother with mere puny man to pay attention to him. That's who we are, but God loves us. He has the very hairs of our head numbered. The Greek word for, he he says, I know your afflictions. 
And the Greek word for affliction means to feel an enormous pressure on your shoulders. And I think that's something that we can all relate to. Maybe you're taking care of a loved one who's not well or praying for a loved one who's not well. Maybe you're, you're struggling with a difficult class at, at school or in, in your program, whatever it is. And, or maybe there's financial challenges that you face, which wouldn't be surprising with inflation the way it is and all the issues that are going on financially. And this applies to all those things. But these people in Smyrna are feeling this because of their faith. Their faith is under pressure. And then Jesus says, I know your poverty. The people in the city didn't want to do business with Christians because they, for fear of being associated with them and, and being persecuted themselves by them. And then he says, I know about the slander. And again, those outside the church were doing everything they could to discredit Christians and the believers in Smyrna. Jesus knows every single thing you are going through. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows. Jesus knows, and this is on your outline, his people in their suffering. And I've said this before, like Dorothy Sayers said, at least God even if he allows suffering in this world, at least he took his own medicine by sending his son Jesus to suffer for us. And he knows that we live in a fallen world. And when first century Christians got together, they celebrated communion like we did today on the first day of the month, like we always do at Claremont Emanuel. And in the first century, the Christians referred to communion as eating the body and the blood of their savior. And so rumors started that the Christians were cannibals, that they were literally eating flesh and literally drinking blood when they got together. And so the people were saying, we need to get rid of them. That was what gave them an excuse to kill the Christians. Unbelievers in Smyrna were eager to believe this. And, and so there was kind of a mob mentality that was going on. It started against the Christians. And when it says in verse 9, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. He's saying that just because they're Jews by birth doesn't mean there's a, they have a spiritual standing before God. The Jews in Smyrna were hostile to the Christians, and because of that, they were under Satan's influence, hence the synagogue of Satan. And even though many Christians came out of the synagogue, uh, the synagogues had grown more and more in opposition to believers. It's like when Jesus spoke to the Jews in John 8, and he says, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. Now, this isn't anything new. This is how they were treating Jesus even at, at this time when Jesus was there. So that's what the last part of verse 9 is about. It's, it's to them and, and to us to say primarily that Jesus knows. He knows your heart. He knows what's going on in your life. He understands. He empathizes. It's not just a knowing about the facts. He knows what it's like to be mocked by family members because he was. 
And he appreciates what it's like to be falsely accused because Jesus was falsely accused. And he understands what it's like to be ridiculed and rejected because he was ridiculed and rejected. And when you're going through a really tough time and you're fighting just to keep your head above water, just to keep the snake from biting you, I believe God is allowing you to hear this today to remind you that even though you think no one can understand exactly what you're going through, that God does. He knows. He's not indifferent. And what should be our response? Exactly what we see here in Revelation 2. To not be afraid of trials. To expect them. Even receive it from the hand of a sovereign God. Because you know there's testing coming and pruning. And refining of your faith to make you to be like Jesus. That's God's goal for you. Remember James? Consider it. It's on your outline. A great joy, my brothers. In fact, let's read this one out loud together. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know, we had uh, one of our missionaries, um, uh, Jay and Lisa, in our home fellowship. and, And Lisa said one time, she said, you know what? When I see a trial coming, I get excited. Because I know God is at work. He's at work in my life. He's at work in the lives of the people around us. Man, would that we could all arrive at that point in our lives. When we see a trial and we go, yes, this is awesome. I know that's hard to do. But even if we don't feel that, we we can pray that. And we can say, Lord, will you help me to see this as coming from you? As even a gift. And meanwhile, we're invited, as it says in 1 Peter, to cast the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all, on him. For he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. He knows. And then the second thing that Jesus says after I know is fear not. That's number two. You know probably that that's one of the most common phrases in the Bible. Jesus tells the Christians at Smyrna who had every reason to fear, he says, do not be afraid in verse 10 of what you are about to suffer. He does not say, do not feel. Because we might feel fear. We might feel anger. We might feel these things. That doesn't mean to be without feeling. He's not saying that. We cling to the cross. And you know what the world says? You know what other religions say? Uh, They say what Yoda said in, in Star Wars, and I would do it in a Yoda voice if I could, but I can't. So you need to imagine it. But Yoda says in one of the Star Wars movies, attachment is the path to the dark side. Let go of all you fear to lose. And Yoda was saying that you need to detach from the world. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's the way a lot of the world religions deal with with fear, with anything. They say you've got to detach from it. Get rid of your attachments. But that's not Jesus' way. 
Think of Jesus. He felt things deeply. Jesus wept. Being unafraid is not about the absence of feeling. It's about, it's about the presence of peace. It's about knowing the peace of God in the midst of all this turmoil going on. And you've got this on your outline. Jesus says, it, it, Jesus does not say, fear not, for you will not suffer. That's not what he says. But we need to know that. That's not what he says. So much of the pain we go through comes down to this, that it's like the fear of sickness or the fear of cancer or the fear of, of, of a car accident. Whatever it is you fear, fear of snakes, whatever it is you fear, it, it's, it's not like as God's child we are exempt from everything that could cause fear. God's word doesn't say anything about us not going through trials and challenging times and hard times in our lives. Jesus does say, look at verse 10 where we left off. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. You know, numbers, whether it's seven or 10 or three or whatever, number you find in Revelation is used in a symbolic way. So he's not saying you will suffer for a week and a half and then the suffering will be over. I think what this is symbolic of is a short amount of time, a limited time. You'll have difficulties for a season. We go through seasons. So Jesus is warning them, you have a season of great struggles ahead. but it won't be long until it's, it's intense. And so be ready. And you have this on your outline. Jesus tells us that life will have suffering and he calls his people to be faithful to death. Be faithful to death. And this is what Jesus says in the gospel of John. He says, in this world, you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's a promise. It's not a promise you're going to find in a little promise book, I I guarantee you. In this world, you will have trouble. If you expect that God owes you a life with no pain and no challenges, you're in for a big surprise. But you won't be surprised if you hear what Jesus says here in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. A fake world Jesus says that it's all roses. A real world Jesus says there are thorns. Life won't go perfectly according to what you want. It never does. So how do we deal with wrong thoughts? Because we get wrong thoughts all the time. 2 Corinthians 10 says we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And the word captive is the same word that's used for a prisoner of war, taking a captive. We take captive our thoughts. We interrogate them because they might be like terrorist thoughts for us, for our Christian lives, for our lives. Wrong thoughts can terrorize us. And we we just shouldn't let these thoughts come in. But when they do come in, how do you get them out of your mind? Have you ever been in a prayer time 
and, and really like you're, you're, you're talking with God, you're connected with God, you are having a relationship with God, a good talk with him, and all of a sudden some crazy random thought comes in your mind? It happens to me, it happens all the time. And there's a spiritual battle that we're a part of. And so what do you do? It's like you need to have your private spiritual TSA. And you say, okay, take off your belt. Take off your shoes, take off your jacket, and keep taking things off at TSA. Empty your pockets. We want to x-ray this bag. There's no TSA pre where you get to keep stuff on. And your thoughts can carry greed, and they can carry fear, and they can carry anxiety. They can carry envy, but we filter them out through the word of God. That's why we must memorize God's word. That's why you have to study his word and read his word on your own. Unless you want a terrorist on board in your mind, you don't let them board your flight. You take every thought captive to Christ. Jesus would never command us to fear not if that were an impossible thing for us to do. It's not impossible. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to help us. And we, we, we can live without fear controlling us. Fears and anxious thoughts, whatever they are that, that you might have about your children, about your grandchildren, about your parents, about your friends, whatever they are. Philippians 4.8 is like, that's like the x-ray machine that we need. Philippians 4.8 says, uh, take, it's like we need to put any terrorist thought through this x-ray machine. Paul writes, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true and noble and reputable and authentic and compelling and gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. That's our x-ray machine. And then you, you let those thoughts board the plane in your mind. You focus on those things. So I know, God says, I know about you. Fear not, he says. And then the third thing on the outline is Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. Be faithful. This is the last part of verse 10. Even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. What Jesus is saying, yes, you are going to go through hard times, but the best is yet to come. Keep an eternal focus in your lives. The, the church in Smyrna would have loved to have heard, hey, your tribulations are over, you're done. Not what they heard. They said the word Jesus was telling them the worst is, is coming. And it's regardless of the journey, we have to know and remember that Jesus will be with us through those trials. So we trust him. There's a life after this one, and there will be rewards for our faithfulness. And this is true for every Christian. One of the pastors at one point in Smyrna, early, in the, early on in the first century, second century, was Polycarp. Um, and he was told to deny Christ 
or else they would persecute everyone in his church. And what Polycarp said, you have on your outline, 86 years I, have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burned him at the stake. And somehow the wind popped up, and, the, and he wasn't burning to death, and so they, they, they stabbed him with knife, with a knife to make sure he was dead. And what they were trying to do completely backfired on the, for the Romans because they saw Polycarp's spiritual strength and, and they were impressed and it made the will of the Christians even stronger. And when the Romans saw his resolve, uh, their opinion of Christians in general changed for the positive. And you know why Polycarp remained faithful? It says it in the quote. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp didn't trust in his own power. He didn't trust in his own confidence. He didn't trust in his own courage. He trusted a faithful savior. That's what God wants us to do, is to trust our faithful savior for 86 years. Trust does not mean that you trust yourself. You trust God's power. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, but, it, but the Holy Spirit, again, relies on God's word, the word of God. That's why we, we fill our minds with the word of God. We trust him. And in return, Jesus promises his children life. You've got that on your outline. And so how do I make this work for me? Like Polycarp, we have to look to Jesus. I, I love the truths that John Stott points out about Jesus in these verses, that he's eternal and victorious and all-knowing and generous. And that's why Polycarp trusted Jesus, and you can trust him too with whatever you are going through. And I know some of you are going through some very difficult things. You can trust him. That's his message to you today. And when adversity comes, the bottom line, and you've got this on your outline, is to focus on Jesus. We keep our eyes on what's eternal. We remember what we've looked at before at the end of Revelation. In Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from your eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And when we focus on that, it will help us to be faithful even when the inevitable challenges come. It's interesting that the only one of the seven churches uh, that still exists today <clears throat> is Smyrna. Uh, in modern day Turkey, it's Izmir. And it's the most Christian part of Turkey. And if you look up, and, and Turkey, as you know, is a very Muslim country. But if you look up churches, evangelical churches in Izmir, you'll find a bunch. And the church was getting, think about this, the church that was getting hammered the most by persecution is the one that stuck around the longest. And you may have it tougher than most people you know, but don't give up. That's God's message to you this morning.
God is working. And he's working in your life to be one of his crown jewels. Do you remember when your parents asked you, uh, where does it hurt? That's what your heavenly father is asking you. Where does it hurt? And will you allow the Holy Spirit to apply these these last principles, these principles of of encouragement in your life to the hurts in your life? Let's just bow our heads together. And I want you to think about this. Think about the first two words, I know. And will you personalize verse nine right now and insert the particulars of your own struggle there? I know your worries about your son. I know your worries about your daughter. I know your worries about this or that. I know your worry about finances. I know your worry about health. I know the pain of betrayal or whatever it is. Say it to the Lord right now in your heart and let him impress this truth. I know. He knows about all your circumstances. And then those next two words, trust me. And remember that if things get better or stay the same or get worse, circumstances cannot change Jesus because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then those last two words, fear not. Entrust yourself right now to him as a living sacrifice. And trust your needs to the one who was persecuted and abandoned and crucified and raised on your behalf. It says in verse eight, he was dead and has come to life. Welcome him, not fear, into your life. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope we have in the gospel. We do look ahead to the joyful day when we will be with you in your presence. Help us, Lord, today, this week, this month, the rest of this year to keep that eternal perspective. We want to have ears to hear what you are saying to us this morning. Will you drive home to each of our hearts the truth that you know? May each one hear hear you telling them, fear not. And trust me. And if there's anyone here who needs to receive Christ today and just to say, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again for me. And so today I put my life in your hands and ask you to empower me. And know that your presence, we have your presence and and we have to be in your presence soon. For that, we praise you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So he who has said all these things declared, yes, I am coming soon.
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.